we are in a series here, beginning a series today, that is called These Stories Aren't Just for Kids. And uh, they're Bible stories that are brought to life for adults. And so we're going to, I've hand selected a number of stories going through the Old Testament this year that we're going to go ahead and try to learn from and, uh, and study out. And so today we're beginning here in Genesis chapter 13. <clears throat> and I'd like to begin reading in verse number one. If you would look there, please. Genesis 13, verse number one. The Bible says, And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the south even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. And Lot also went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. And the land was not able to bear them that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. And there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. And the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled then in the land. And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. Before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. Then Lot chose him, all the plain of Jordan. And Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. Now, if we stop there, you'd probably say to yourself, well, okay, these two men made decisions. Each separated their own different ways, but notice verse 13, where Lot chose. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. We won't cover the rest of really of Lot in some of our future stories here, but if you read in the next few chapters, you will see how this affected Lot in a tremendous way. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you administer to us right now as we get into the Word of God. Touch us, I pray. Help us to understand a little bit more about this particular story and how it relates to our lives. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name and for his sake. Amen. I recall when I was in high school, one of the particular years, I think it was my sophomore year, uh, we had to learn uh, some various poems and actually go through and discuss them. It was, you know, some things of literature, which I wasn't really very fond of. But I do remember one of the poems that we had learned. It was by Robert Frost called The Road Not Taken. And I'm going to quote to you the last stanza that was given there. It says, Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I chose the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. You know, 
these famous words that were written by Robert Frost almost seem to fit right into our text that we read here in Genesis chapter 13. In this chapter, we have two men and a choice of which way they will travel. Leading up to our text, these two men had traveled together down a long and dusty road, but now they choose different and separate paths. One chooses a well-traveled road that to him looked good and appealing. The other went to a lonely countryside. The first one ends up losing his possessions and family. The other gains blessing and honor. What was the difference? It was in the roads that they traveled on, or we could say in the choice that they made. Last couple weeks, I've been thinking a lot about high school and choices that graduates have made. Many of you I have talked to over the years have gone to your high school reunions, and you've caught up with your high school pals and seen how choices have brought them all around the world and in different parts of the world in different professions and various things of their life. And my class is no different. I went to a Christian high school in New Hampshire and The Christian high school that my dad wanted to send me to was close enough where we could visit one another, but it was far enough away where I had to actually live in a dormitory. So for four years, from grades 9 through 12, I lived in a dormitory and was with other students. And when we came to my senior year, it was very interesting. This Christian school was getting ready to uh, celebrate the 25th anniversary of the school. And lo and behold, we had 25 students graduating that year. But two months before graduation, now this is a Christian school, mind you, there were two couples that were in our senior class that shacked up together one night and found that they had to be expelled from the school because of their behavior. And so now we're down to 21 students. But 21 students, we together were bonded and we loved one another and we just, it was home for us and we enjoyed each other's company. We were all, for those few years, under the same environment, same teaching, enjoyed each other's company. But now, over the last 30-plus years, it's been amazing to see the journeys of each one. Some have gone into the ministry. Some have left the faith and really have nothing to do with Christianity at all. Some have been all over parts of the world. Others have had disasters happen in their family and on and on it goes. But it really comes down to one thing and it's the very simple word, choice. Choices that all of us make. As I look at this chapter here that we read and really go back to the historical context of chapters 11 and 12... I want to look at two individuals involved, and I want to see the place where they made the decision and the struggle, and finally the solution that came through in making the choice. So first of all, number one, I want you to notice the people involved. There are two main characters in this story that we're going to touch on today, that of Abram and the other of Lot. Now, if I slip up and say Abraham, I think you'll understand me, all right? Later on in the Scriptures, God chooses to select Abraham, and he actually changes his name because of the covenant he makes with him. He changes his name to Abraham. But in this context, 
in this chapter, he's known as Abram. So would you already be fair with me in case I say Abraham and slip up? You'll understand who I'm talking about. But Abram is the one that's first talked about. Now, the Bible mentions Abram's wife, but she's not really a main character, and she's not mentioned anymore in the rest of the chapter. We do know that Lot had family. When we read in succeeding chapters that there is a wife and there are two daughters that are involved, but they're not mentioned. So really, we come down to these two individuals, Abram and Lot. Who was Abram? Well, we're first introduced to Abram at the end of chapter number 11. Abram is a son of Terah, but more importantly, Abram has come through the line of Shem. If you go back to the beginning and Sunday nights, if you were with us, we did a study on the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and we looked at the very beginnings here of the world and the beginnings of things that God had established. And right there in the Garden of Eden, God had promised to Adam and Eve after their sin that a Redeemer would come through them. But now the next chapters, Adam and Eve have two children, Cain and Abel, but Cain kills Abel. And there's a curse that is placed on Cain. So now Seth is born, and through Seth comes this promise. Passed down now a hundred of years to the place where there's wickedness on the place of the earth. Genesis chapter number 6. And God brings a worldwide flood, and only eight people are saved. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. And as these eight people step off the boat, we then find God's plan for the nations of the world. Each of those sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, would eventually spread over the earth. But it would be through that son of Noah by the name of Shem, whom the Messiah would come. And so if you like reading genealogical records, you read in Genesis chapter 11 that through Shem comes Terah, Terah's son is Abram, and Abram's a character in our story. But after Terah, Abram's father, dies, Abram leaves the country of where they were a part of, and he follows God to the land that God had promised to him and his descendants. I want you to turn back one chapter and look at chapter number 12 and notice the first three verses. Because these three verses give us what we commonly call the Abrahamic covenant. A covenant that God makes with Abraham. Look at this. The Lord said, chapter 12, verse 1, unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country. Where was he? In the country of, in the city of Haran. Get thee out of thy country, from thy kindred, from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee. And make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. If you study this covenant out, there really are three major aspects to this covenant that God makes with Abraham. First of all, there's a promise for land to Abram and all of his descendants. If you look through the rest of scriptures, in fact, If you were to go forward three chapters to Genesis chapter 15, if you looked at Numbers 34, 
Ezekiel chapter 47 and, or 37 and 38, you would find where the parameters are given for the land that God promised to Israel. In fact, if you studied those passages out, you'd say to yourself, there should be no squabble today over the land in Israel because that's what God has given to them. That's their land all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, God promised to them. But not only was there land that God would give to Abram, but there would be descendants. Now picture this for just a moment. 75 years old is Abram. And God says to him and his wife Sarah, you're going to have a baby. Imagine that. Imagine if God came to some of you today and said, you're going to have a baby. Some of you would have a heart attack. I'd be visiting you in the hospital. But I want to tell you something. There's another promise given in this covenant, and that is that Abram and his descendants would be a blessing to the whole world. Ultimately, this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Because as Jesus Christ came, that promised Messiah, the whole world, Jew and Gentile, are blessed. But I want you to note something about this covenant, and that is it would be expanded on in the future with Abram and his descendants. But Abram here, who is this man? He's the father of the Jewish people. He's the father of the Israelites because he had a son by the name of Isaac, who had a son by the name of Jacob, who had 12 children who became the nucleus for the tribes of the nation of Israel. Who is Abraham? A very important character. But now second character is that of Lot. Who is he? Lot was a nephew to Abraham. When you look back at the end of chapter number 11, again in verses 27 to 31, I won't look at it with you, but you can see the following, that Terah, Abram's father, had three sons. One of the sons, Haran, had died, but he had a son by the name of Lot. Abram and Sarai, his wife, went ahead and adopted Lot and actually had Lot as one of his own. So now here's these two characters, the people involved. But now I want you to notice verse number or or point number two of this wonderful story, the place of importance. Look back at chapter 13 and verse number three, where the Bible says, and he went on his journeys from the south, even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai unto the place of the altar. Let's figure out for just a moment where Abram and Lot are. Well, Haran, the place that they left, is located up in the country of what is now known today as Turkey, was about 300 miles northeast of Israel. In the Bible days, Haran was in the region that was known as Mesopotamia. But I'm not here to give you a geographical lesson here today. Instead, I want you to understand some of the spiritual applications to where Abram is at in this juncture. In chapters 11 through 12, we see that Abram had been called out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he settled in Haran. But it's there that God makes a covenant with Abram and says, I'm going to give you seed, I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to cause you and your descendants to be a blessing, and Abram decides to go to the land to see what God has promised him. So as he's journeying south, he comes to where Ai, one city, and Bethel are on either side of him, 
And it is there, based on God's movement in his life and God speaking to him, that Abram establishes an altar. Now, you have to ask a question here for just a moment. What's an altar? An altar is a something that is established where man meets with God. A place where man approaches humbly before God and acknowledges who he is, gives praise to God and adoration. And here it is that Abram is situated right between Bethel and Ai and establishes here this particular altar. Now, some commentators that I've read have said, well, Bethel means house of God. Ai means uh, uh, house of ruin. And it's an idea that Abram situates himself halfway between God and the world. And they said, well, Abram's made somewhat of a compromise. And I don't see it that way. I really believe that as Abram comes and he's given this covenant by God, that he sees there's a house of God, there is a worship for God, but he sees on the other hand there is the world and the rubble and the rubbish of the world, and therefore he realizes that as God's chosen vessel, he is to be a witness to the world. So he gives his adoration and his worship to God. That's the place that Abram comes to. Now, It doesn't mention much about Lot and him giving an offering. Him coming before the altar. It literally mentions about Abram and his worship to God. I'm not implying here today that Lot had no spiritual bone in his body. I'm not implying today that Lot had no care for God. Both men throughout the scriptures were noted to be righteous or just men. But I am here to specifically say something to you today that as we look at the choices that each made, Abram and Lot, we find that this place, the place where Abram came back to worship God was of great importance. Because there's something that happened in the previous chapter. There was a, after Abram had made this particular altar before God, there was a famine that came along. That famine caused Abram and all of his family, including Lot, to go south into Egypt. And it is there they found the fertile lands and they were able to feed their families. But if you know your Bible well enough, while Abram is there, he makes a very foolish decision. All of the people in Egypt start noticing how beautiful Sarah is. Now, I'm not sure what type of makeup she used, how well she did her hair. I really don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But it seems to indicate she's a very beautiful woman and therefore catches the eye of all these men. And word comes to Pharaoh and Pharaoh takes her because he understands from Abram's own lips, which was a half lie, this is my sister. Now, men, let me just tell you something. You better stick up for your wife. But Abram lies and it becomes a whole problem. And Pharaoh gives Sarah back to him. But he also blesses him with a bunch of stuff. And Abram, where does he go back to? He goes back to the place where he first made that worship with God. Can I encourage you about something? It's not if you're going to mess up. You are going to mess up. It's not whether you're going to have problems in your life. It's the fact that when you sin against God and you do something wrong, you come back to the last place that you had met with God. And that's where Abram comes back to. That altar, it's that place where he comes to 
and the Scriptures duly note that place of worship. But I want you to notice number three here, very important. Now the problem introduced. Look with me, if you will, at verses 5 through 7. Notice here. It says here, Lot also, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. The land's not able to bear them. And verse 7, there's strife between them. So first of all, I want you to notice the Bible makes mention that Lot is there with Abram. Lot's been along on this journey. Lot is rich also in flocks and herds and tents. So you could say to yourself, if you looked at Lot's portfolio, his financial portfolio, you say, man, this guy's got it. He may not have been as rich as Abram, but he had done well being with Abram. But now notice verse number 6. We notice here the Bible says that the land is not able to bear them. Now, I'm going to admit to you today, I'm more of a city boy. I've never been much of an agricultural guy. My wife grew up on a farm. They had cows and all sorts of things, and she, she had all, all sorts. I, I was more of a city boy. So I'm, I don't understand agriculture, but I do know this, that if you've got a certain period, a, a place of land, there's only so much land to water and feed your animals. I get that. And because of the great herd that both Abram and Lot owned, it became impossible for them to be in the same area. Notice twice in verse number 6, it talks about their inability to live or dwell together. Look at that. The land was not able to bear them that they might dwell together. The ending of verse number 6, so that they could not dwell together. But now notice verse number 7, the problem introduced here. It was not a problem only between Abram and Lot, but it was a problem between all their employees. Now, I think that if there weren't employees involved, Abram and Lot might have been able to have a simple discussion and work things out easily. But it forced a rift between them because of all the herdsmen that worked for them. In fact, the word strife that is used in verse 7 refers to contention. And it is such a strong word that it has this idea of provocation. So I think there are some bad things that were going on between Lot's employees and Abram's employees where finally Abram comes to the place where he says, we got to do something about this. Add to this one other problem. Sometimes we read through Scripture and we wonder, why was that put there? Notice the end of verse number 7. It says here in the beginning that there was strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. And look at the last phrase, and the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled then in the land. You know, sometimes I've read that and I'm like, why was that put in there? What's the big deal? Okay, so the Canaanites and Perizzites are there. Well, the Bible, I believe, mentions these two particular groups of people because they also are going after the same land and they're watching this man, Abram, who's been given a promise for all this land and has established an altar before the God Jehovah whom we don't worship. So now... We're going to see how these two individuals deal with this strife. Can I remind you of something? The world's watching how you deal with problems. Your neighbors, your co-workers, 
your friends, your relatives are observing you. They may not say anything to you, but oh, they're watching. These Canaanites and Perizzites were watching Abram. Now notice the last point, the preference indicated. In other words, what was the choice that was made? Well, having a lot of resources, material goods, that can cause conflicts, can it not? Some of you that have gained some things in this world realize that you may enjoy it for a little time, but it can cause problems. Someone once said, I've been more bossed by my fortune than I've bossed it. It's true. It's sad that for many, they have allowed their finances to dictate their lives, but not Abram. Abram thought this through and came to a particular conclusion that many in this room need to come to. In other words, the conclusion that Abram came to is this, people are more important than possessions. Think about that for just a moment. I know a lot of people, a lot of Christians, who live as if possessions are the most valuable thing in this world. Their house is the most important thing. The money that they gain is the most important thing. All of the things that they own are more important, and they would rather break fellowship and hurt others in order to keep what they have. But not Abram. Abram would have rather cut his losses than sever a relationship with his nephew. He would have rather taken the hurt than to intentionally hurt Lot. So what does Abram do? Well, he first indicates his intentions. In other words, he comes to Lot, his nephew, and says, Look, Lot, I care about our relationship more than everything that we have involved, so I'm going to give you a choice. He tells him, notice here in these verses, beginning in verse number 8 and 9, he tells him that he'll not hold back. In other words, he says, the whole land is before thee. Look at that. He then informs him that he'll take whatever Lot does not take. In other words, Lot, if you choose the left, this left side, I'll take the right. But if you decide that you want the right side, I'll go ahead and do the left. Now, notice here what Lot does. Look at verse number 10. Lot lifted up his eyes. What does he do? He lifts up his eyes. Now, what do you think he saw? Well, to me, as I read the Scriptures, I think he saw, as he looked to this one side, he saw something that was beautiful. Well-watered. Lush grass everywhere, thinking to himself, man, this is prime property right over here. In fact, the Bible says that it was like the garden of the Lord. Now, neither Abram or Lot or any of their contemporaries had actually seen the garden, but I'll bet you that word over the years got passed down how beautiful the Garden of Eden was. And when Lot looks over, he goes, that looks like the Garden of Eden, and I want it. Now, some of us get a little rough about Lot. Let me just say to you that if you had gone through a famine in Canaan, and you had gone down to the Nile River, and you had seen how fertile everything was there in Egypt, which place would you have chosen? Would you have chosen the well-watered area? Or would you have said, no, nah, i just go ahead and take the rocks over here. And yeah, there's a couple of blades of grass. It's okay. I'll take that. No, no, Lot, Lot chose 
where he wanted to. Don't blame them. It was near the cities. It was fertile. It was well watered. It was perfect for raising a flock. It held prospects of gaining more wealth and being able to do more things. So he chose, really, what was the obvious place. But I want to tell you something. There's more to Lot's choice than just the natural, the physical. There was something spiritual going on because what does Lot not see? You know, it's interesting here. This is something that you don't catch out of just a normal reading, but it's true study. It seems that in the book of Genesis that those who set their backs against God often would go east. Notice how Lot chose and went east. Before Lot, two people by the name of Adam and Eve were driven out of the Garden of Eden through a gate on the east side of the garden. Their son Cain, who had killed his brother Abel, was driven east after sinning against God and his brother. The builders of the Babel of Tower, the Babel Tower, headed east when they set out to connect heaven and earth by human strength. And now Lot is added to this list of turning a different direction and going east. It's not a great direction. And what does Lot not see? Well, look at verse number ten. Notice. He chose to be near a group of people whom God destroyed. Look at what it says. He lifted up his eyes, beheld all the plains of Jordan. that was well watered everywhere. And what was that area? It was the area near Sodom and Gomorrah, and it was before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. But notice verse number 13. The Bible tells us the description of these people. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Lot chose with the physical eyes, but he could not see certain things until much, much later. Lot followed his eyes, and in so doing, he chose that which might have temporarily helped him out, but had a devastating effect on him and his family. Years later. Today, as I conclude this story about Abraham and Lot and their choices, I want you to consider the choices that you're making today. I'm not talking about the choice of where you're going to eat lunch after the service is dismissed. I'm not talking about the little choices of everyday life. I'm talking about major life-altering decisions. Let me give you four statements. Number one, choices rest with you and you alone. Think about that. It's amazing how many excuses we make and try to shift the responsibility away. As a pastor, having people who have dealt with choices and the repercussions of those choices, I've heard of so many things. Pastor, you don't understand my situation. Boy, it's really hard. I was under pressure. That's why I made that decision. Or I love this one. The devil made me do it. I'm telling you, we live often in this life as if our hands are tied and that we are the victim. If you're a born-again Christian, you're not a victim. You are a victor in Jesus Christ. 
Let me tell you something. The devil may be strong. Yes, he is. The Bible says that he is the God, small g, of this world. But if you're saved, greater is he, the Holy Spirit, who is in you than he that's in the world. Someone once put it this way. The Lord, he's always voting for a man. The devil, he's always voting against him. But it's the man himself who votes and breaks the tie. You have a choice to make. And no one's going to force you. Number two statement. Choices reveal where your heart really is. You know, we did a series last year on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus made a very interesting statement. He said, wherever your treasure is... There will your heart be also. You see, there's really only two choices in this life. You can boil it down however you want, but you're either going to choose God and His way, or you're going to choose the world. Well, here's what First John chapter 2, verse 17, 15 to 17 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Ask yourself this question. Where is your heart? Because the outward choices that you make, the decisions that come about in your life, are only a reflection of, Of what is in your heart. Number three statement is this. What looks good may not always be best. How many have purchased something? You don't need to raise your hand, but I want you to just kind of give me a a little sigh that this has happened to you. You've purchased something. Maybe an old car that looked good. Or a salesperson came by and you fell for the the whole gamut, and you bought this thing. Man, it looked good. Fell apart after a while. Well, we find that in life. Often what looks good may not always best. Remember here about Lot's choice. He looked, and he saw things, and it looked appealing. It was good for his cattle, sheep, all of these animals. But what looked good was not really that good because we often choose by what feels good or that which is appealing to our natural senses. But I'm telling you something, it's important to choose what God would have us to choose. Number four statement, and oh, this is so true. The choices we make can have serious consequences. Serious consequences. It's amazing the similarities between these two individuals that we talked about. Abram and Lot. Same family. Same environment. Both considered in the Bible to be just or righteous men. But on one hand, as Abram, blessed by God, given everything that he could see. Because notice verse 14, I love this. Look at verse 14 of our chapter, chapter 13. The Lord said unto Abraham, After that lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes 
Look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which thou seest to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. I almost think that Abram was saying to Lot, Lot, go ahead and choose. But really, whatever you choose, God's going to give it to me anyways. And I'd rather have it not of a choice that I make selfishly, but I'd rather have it as a choice that God has for my life. Abram's blessed by God, but Lot, he ended up in a wicked city. It affected him and his family the rest of their life. In fact, it almost cost him his life. When God eventually destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of their wickedness, his wife had been so drawn to the wicked attractions in that world that she turned to look back when they were leaving, and the Bible says that she turned into a pillar of salt. The daughters were so affected. The son-in-laws were so affected by all this. Lot made an awful, awful choice. I read an illustration a number of years ago. It was actually a study done by a group of sociologists in the state of New York, and they had studied two particular men who had lived in the same state back in the 1700s. The one man's name was Max Jukes. The other, his name was Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher in one of the revivals in our American states. Max Jukes did not believe in Christian training at all. In fact, he married, made a choice to marry a girl of like character. And from this marriage, these sociologists found that there were 1,026 descendants. 300 of them died prematurely. 100 were sent to the penitentiary for an average of 13 years each. 190 were public prostitutes. There were 100 drunkards from this. 190, uh, 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 680 were admitted alcoholics. And the family cost the state of New York in this time over a million dollars. Because of their choices... Because of Max Juke's choices, his family made no positive, helpful contribution to society. But on the other side is Jonathan Edwards. One of the greatest minds that God has given in America lived in the state of New York. A man who dedicated himself to the Bible and Christian principles. And made a choice to marry a girl of the same character. From this union, men have studied, these sociologists studied that there were 729 descendants. Of this number, 300 became preachers. 65 were college professors, 13 university presidents. There were 60 authors of good books, three United States congressmen, and one came out to be a vice president of the United States. Now, there was one grandson who was of questionable character, But do you realize that as sociologists studied this out, the family did not cost the state of New York one single dollar for their troubles. All of it because of choices. Abraham had a choice to make. God blessed him because of the right choice. Lot made a choice that was appealing to him that looked good. And it greatly affected his life. 
What choices do you have this week to make? Some of you are looking at relationships. Some of you are looking at decisions to make with money. Some of you are deciding what church to be a part of. Some of you are making, and on and on the list could go of decisions to make. But oh, I hasten you to read over and over this story of Lot and Abram. To be sure that you make a decision that doesn't just look good on the outside, but that is pleasing to God. Something that God wants. And something that will have great and lasting effects for the cause of Christ.